This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And in this episode, we have the brilliant Alistair Cross. He's the author of a new book, The Spitfire Kids, the generation who built, supported and flew Britain's most beloved fighter. We wanted, as we approach the anniversary of the beginning of the Battle of Britain on Saturday, to take those few steps back and look at how the Spitfire actually came into existence. Who was it who invented it? And who were the geniuses that sorted out all those niggly problems that made it the fighter aircraft that it came to be to help win the Second World War? Alistair is brilliant, so here he is on the Spitfire Kids. Hi, Alistair. Thanks for coming on the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? Very well, James. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Not a problem at all. Well, it's the perfect time to have you on the podcast as we approach the anniversary of the start of the Battle of Britain on Saturday, July 10th, when those brave young Spitfire pilots risked and gave their lives to defend the UK. But in your work, you take us a little bit further back to the people who built the aircraft, who were also quite young in their teens and early 20s. So tell us, when did the work on the Spitfire begin? Well, you can actually take the story of the Spitfire back quite a long way because it has its kind of origins in the Schneider Trophy, which was this battle between the great aviation nations of the interwar period to build the fastest possible aircraft. And at the time, seaplanes were the fastest possible aircraft. And France, Italy, the States and the UK battled over 20 years to build these amazing aircraft, which went faster than man had ever gone before. And the key figure for us in the Spitfire story is R.J. Mitchell, who was the designer of the Spitfire. And he cut his teeth on the Schneider Trophy. It was set up by a sort of French playboy called Jacques Schneider, whose father, I think, ran an armaments company and made a fortune. So he, his son raced speedboats and aircraft and anything he could get his hands on, basically fast cars, and was determined that aircraft could improve much faster. So put lots of money into this prize to challenge the world really to build faster aircraft. 
And for someone like R.J. Mitchell, that was just irresistible. He was a railway engineer to start with, but obsessed by aircraft. I think he'd seen the Wright Brothers flyer, came to his home city of Stoke, and he got really excited by that. And at the time, there was kind of a, there were air races across Britain, the fastest aircraft London to Manchester, and the Daily Mail was sort of giving money for that. So R.J. Mitchell kind of got obsessed by aircraft, got himself a job during the First World War at this tiny, tiny aircraft company, Supermarine, down in Southampton on the South Coast. And that was the start of the Spitfire story, really. It was a really odd company, <laughs> really, really odd company. It was run by a guy called Pemberton Billing, who was a sort of self-made millionaire. He'd uh, run away from home at 13, gone to South Africa, become a boxer, a policeman, and then developed various odd obsessions, one of which was aircraft, which is good for us. Another one was that basically everyone was out to get him and he was obsessed with a homosexual conspiracy. Apparently, this was during the First World War. He was very angry with the government for everything that was going wrong in the First World War and convinced himself that 47,000 people in the British establishment were engaged in a lesbian conspiracy to overthrow the government. And the Prime Minister's wife, Margot Asquith, was apparently involved in all this. And he spread these ridiculous rumours and conspiracy theories through a magazine, which was originally called Imperialist and became called The Vigilante, which kind of gives you a feel for where he was going. He was obsessed with Jews causing our defeat in the First World War. He hated German music. That was another thing he was obsessed with. But lesbians was the main thing. But that's taking us quite a long way from the story of the Spitfire. But the point really was the Schneider Trophy was just such a challenge for aircraft designers. And R.G. Mitchell just threw himself into it. And the aircraft he built got better and better and better and faster and faster and faster. And he eventually won the Schneider Trophy three times. And the final aircraft was the Supermarine S6 which if you look at it, you can see the Spitfire, basically. It looks like a Spitfire, but with massive great boats attached to the bottom of it. And that's the start of the Spitfire story. That's really interesting, because I always wondered how on earth you had such a sophisticated fighter plane in time for the start of the Second World War. Because during times of peace and in the interwar period, there is usually a reduction in the amount you invest in weapons technologies. And that means that when a new war starts, you have to skill up very, very quickly. But it sounds like we owe a lot to this bunch of iconoclasts and rich millionaires, some of which sound like they were a little bit... Um, well, let's just say I'm not entirely sure whether I'm reassured or deeply disturbed by the fact that they were engaged in such conspiracy <laughs> theories. Yeah, absolutely. And these characters kind of pop up through the story as well. There's somebody called Lady Lucy Houston, who when the British government in the 1920s during the Great Depression ran out of money and the Labour government at the time said they weren't going to fund the Schneider Trophy challenge anymore. And Lady Lucy Houston was rabidly anti-communist. She was convinced the government were in the pay of Moscow and offered up £100,000 to pay for the Schneider Trophy challenge. And the government was so embarrassed they had to give in. And frankly, if she hadn't done that, the Spitfire story might have just ended there. So Alistair, when did the Spitfire project become a military project? Well, it happened basically just as the Schneider Trophy was ending. So in 1931, R.J. Mitchell and Supermarine won the Schneider Trophy for the third time, which meant they got to keep the cup and the Schneider Trophy ended. And less than a month later, the uh, Air Ministry in the UK issued an appeal for a new fighter. It was a specification to build a new fighter plane. And that was the start. That's when lots of companies, Hawker obviously went on to build a Hurricane and Supermarine with Spitfire started the whole process of coming up with a kind of modern monoplane, heavily armed fighter. 
So as they were going through that process, was it a pretty swift and easy transition from this peacetime, super fast speed aircraft to turning it into a more agile fighter aircraft? It certainly wasn't smooth because for some reason, which is not quite clear, R.G. Mitchell ignored what he'd just been doing and went off on an entirely different path for the first specification, his first prototype for the new fighter. So he built this kind of gull-winged aircraft that, if you're familiar with what a Stuka looks like, it was a bit like one of those with the sort of bent wings, rather aggressive looking, no cockpit on it, and an engine that was cooled in a really unusual way that involved kind of passing the water through the wings to cool down the engine. And it was all just absurdly complicated. It was a kind of steampunk version of a military aircraft. And the pilots who flew it just thought it was awful. And you know, RG Mitchell eventually accepted that when the ministry refused it and started from scratch again, went back to his designs from the Schneider Trophy, looked at the speed and the elegance. I mean, whether he was obsessed by the elegance or not, we are. You know, we look at those aircraft and they are gorgeous. And came up over several years with the plan for the Spitfire, which was so much more elegant, so much smoother. And as soon as pilots got a chance to fly it, they fell in love with it. They all seemed to have fallen in love with it straight away. So who were part of RJ Mitchell's team? You must have had an equally mad yet ingenious bunch to try and solve these niggly problems to make sure that this could be the best aircraft that it could. Well, Mitchell himself, of course, died before the Spitfire went into action. He saw it fly, but he certainly didn't see it fight. And fortunately, he had built up this incredibly good team at Supermarine. He'd become chief designer at Supermarine at just 24. And a lot of the aircraft companies in that period were using very young chief designers. It was a bit like this sort of tech race now. You know, you had these kind of tech entrepreneurs who were willing to throw money at things, try things out, see what worked. And so you had a lot of very clever young engineers rising to the top. And Archie Mitchell, although he was a bit of a curmudgeonly character and quite temperamental, he had a really interesting way of kind of building the team around him and encouraging them. So he'd employ these young trainee engineers but he involved them in every part of the project. So if somebody came to him with an idea and put it on his desk, he would gather everybody around to discuss it. And sometimes he'd be really objectionable about it. He'd throw the piece of paper onto the ground and turn away and go back into his office. But mostly it was this kind of collaborative process. So these people were all learning. And so when he tragically died of cancer, there was a team ready and waiting to come in and improve the Spitfire before it reached service. So tell us about some of these people. How young were they? They were men and women, weren't they? Because as I was looking through your book, there's people like Beatrice Schilling, who had a big impact on making sure that the Spitfire was as good as it could be. Yes. I mean, a lot of this, you sort of have this assumption that the Spitfire sort of arrived at the start of the war in kind of a perfect condition and did everything perfectly well. But actually, like every piece of machinery in war or anything else, there were a lot of kind of edges to be sanded off and smoothed off. And some of them were quite serious. So during the Battle of Britain, you'll hear this from archive recordings and books. You can read some of the pilots, people like Douglas Bader, noticed big problems with the Spitfire. And the biggest one was that as you went into dive, if you're chasing a German aircraft, you went into dive, the engine would stall. So you had to kind of pull out of your dive. So lots of German aircraft actually escaped being shot down because they knew that was going to happen. So they did as steep a dive as they possibly could so that they knew the Spitfire would just have to turn away to you know, restart their engine. 
And this caused enormous headaches. It was put out by the ministry to the people at Rolls-Royce who'd built the Merlin engines and the people at the Royal Aircraft Establishment who were the kind of tech gurus of the time. What they didn't know about engines wasn't worth knowing. You know, the biggest brains in aviation were in this Royal Aircraft Establishment at Farnborough. And very luckily for the future of the Spitfire and for lots of pilots, there was an extraordinary woman called Beatrice Schilling who was running the carburetor department there. So her and her five or six guys that she managed spent months and months and months looking at this problem. Why was this engine stalling and what could be done about it? And it turned out it was the carburetor. Then the fuel going into it, the carburetor basically is a valve that kind of regulates the amount of fuel going into an engine. And as a Spitfire went into dive, too much fuel was going in and it basically shut the whole thing down. And they just couldn't work out how to do it. You know, that's not a problem if you've got a car because you're on the flat and you're stable. But as soon as you go into dive in an aircraft, it was a problem. And eventually Beatrice, <laughs> she was a champion motorbike racer. She was the second woman, I think, in Britain to ride a motorcycle faster than 100 miles an hour. And she was the first woman to get an engineering degree from Manchester University. So she was in this world of mechanical engineering and sweaty guys in leather and motorbike racing and oil and grease. And she just loved it. She'd been like this from the stars. Her mother remembered her kind of pulling bicycles apart and putting them back together again. And uh, she'd actually got a start in the business from the Women's Engineering Society. They'd been set up just after the First World War because obviously in the First World War, lots of women went into factories, went into hard engineering work. And as soon as the war ended, the businesses, the management, the unions pushed all the women back again. And the Women's Engineering Society was set up to kind of stop that happening and to keep a few, at least a few women in the engineering business and to teach the next generation of female engineers. And they um, got hold of Beatrice at school and offered her a scholarship to a small company in Devon that were basically electrifying Devon at the time. And this was just fabulous for Beatrice. She was, you know, at 16 or 17, she took the train down to Devon and started putting the lights on in Devon. She would take diesel engines apart, put them back together again, and ran a sort of team of young men who began to worship her. And the same thing happened at the Royal Aircraft Establishment. She had this you know, incredible team who just thought the sun shone out of her. So when this problem of the carburetor arrived on her desk, she was definitely the best person to tackle it. And finally, she came up with this tiny little washer. It's about the size of a thumbnail and fitted in the right place in the carburetor. It stopped the fuel rushing in too fast and it solved it at a stroke and uh, you know the people at Rolls-Royce who'd built the engine were slightly curmudgeonly about it and probably a little bit annoyed that a young woman in uh, Farnborough had solved the problem rather than them but she in typical fashion she got on her motorbike took a big bag full of these washers around RAF stations around the country fitted them directly to Merlin engines in Spitfires and Hurricanes and suddenly you know RAF pilots could dive to their heart's content that is amazing you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm volure xc 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on The Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. So what sort of impact did developments like this have on the war, have on the Battle of Britain? In fact, how important do you think the Spitfire was and those young pilots were to victory in the Battle of Britain? Well, some of these problems were ironed out after the Battle of Britain, it has to be said. You know, the pilots in the Battle of Britain had to accept what they had, basically, because the factories were being bombed at the time, so new Spitfires were not coming out very fast. And certainly new developments weren't happening because they just had to build them as quickly as they could. So, you know, for pilots, you had these imperfect aircraft and, you know, they were dealing with them. Obviously, everyone will, whenever you write a book about a Spitfire, people will say, well, the Hurricanes won the Battle of Britain because there were more of them and uh, they shot down more Germans, which, yeah. You certainly cannot deny that. But yeah, I mean, it's the pilots, it's the crew, it's the ground crew, it's the people in the factories that were just so vital in winning that war. And, you know, that's very much the focus of the book is the youth of these people. You know, there's a famous statistic that the average age of a pilot in the Battle of Britain was 20. 
But, you know, the average age of the people building it was probably younger because you go through the diaries of the time and the memoirs and so on. And, you know, these people were 14, 15, 16, 17, doing their first office jobs, first traineeships in engineering companies at Supermarine and so on. And, you know, these kids were building these aircraft whilst bombing raids were going on. The factory in Southampton that was building all the Spitfires during the Battle of Britain was just bombed incessantly and everyone knew they were basically doomed because Southampton was just so close to France. A German squadron of bombers could come over in 30, 40 minutes, hide behind the Isle of Wight. By the time the radar had picked them up, they would be right over the factory. And it was so important to keep the Spitfires churning, keep building them, that the government told Supermarine not to sound the air raid warning unless there were actually aircraft right over the factory. So air raid warning would go off in Southampton for the people of the city but it wouldn't go off for the factory because there were so many false alarms and you know single aircraft going over that would stop production and that couldn't be allowed to happen. So we go through the diaries of the kids that were working there at the time and they were petrified. You know, they knew that the air raid shelters that they had near the factory were pretty rubbish. They were too far away. They were very vulnerable to attack and they knew something really bad was going to happen. And sure enough, the inevitable raid happened, which destroyed the factory. But incredibly enough, they weren't downhearted. You know, this plan came into fruition very quickly where production was spread out from the single factory in Southampton to tiny little workshops all around the south of England in Hampshire, Wiltshire, Dorset. And it was, you know, glove factories, laundrettes, car showrooms, agricultural tractor sales places all around the south of England. And suddenly this whole new workforce had to be trained up and trained up by these people who were basically kids themselves. So kids in tiny little rural villages were suddenly leaving their jobs as shop assistants and Marks and Spencers or housemaids to go and be riveters at building Spitfires. So it's those young people that kind of maybe get a bit forgotten when we think about the pilots all the time, but we forget about the people who actually put the planes together. That's insane. I knew nothing about that. They literally fragmented the factory and moved it around towns and cities. Is there like a map that kind of documents where these places were? Do we know of the stories of the people who worked there? Yeah, absolutely. There's, I mean, it was kind of unknown at the time and unknown for many decades afterwards, a little bit in the same way as, you know, you didn't hear about the SOE and people like that and the security services at the time because people had signed the Official Secrets Act and didn't like to talk about anything they'd done during the war. So it's only the last sort of few years that as these people have been sadly approaching their death, they've told their stories and the story of this kind of dispersal as it was called, came out. And it was this kind of 60 mile radius from Southampton. That was thought to be the kind of maximum you could do and keep the experience of the Southampton workers involved in the production. And it was Trowbridge, Salisbury, places like that, you know, little towns, cathedral cities, Reading, Newbury. And as you say, fragmented, each little workshop might just build a one tiny little bit of the aircraft. And then you had this kind of incredible logistical effort to bring all the bits together. <laughs> Think how many thousands of bits there are in something like a Spitfire. And they all had to be brought together in one place, assembled into something that worked and then checked and made sure it was safe before a pilot took it up. I think that's a part of the Second World War history that we really miss. We have these grand narratives or we focus on these big events, big occasions and major cities that were bombed or part of the war effort and of course the major factories as well but it really was a whole 
national total war, total mobilization. You had these small workshops and people in villages and towns that were working towards the greater war effort. But also when it came to the bombing of the UK, you had vast amounts of cities outside of the Battle of Britain that just continued once the Battle of Britain was supposedly won, right? You had your Swansea's and your Glasgow's and your Hull's and your Grimsby's and your Plymouth's and everything else that went across the UK. And I can't wait for the new histories of that that are going to be written in the future, hopefully by you as well, Alistair. That'll be the next project we get you on for. Now, you've got to take us through a little bit as the war progresses, because you're right, you know, they had to disperse this factory because the bombing got to a point where they could destroy the Spitfire factories, but they were also taking down the Spitfire pilots at just a rapid rate. So who was brought in to try and sustain that fight? Did we get help from abroad? I know there was a big Polish contingent. Where in the world came in to help this RAF at the beginning of the war? It's a real international effort, you know, as you'd expect, and as people have heard, you know, the Poles, Czechs, obviously the countries that had been taken over by the Germans, their pilots came and joined us and the French once France fell. But what's probably less well known is the American effort. You know, we know about the Americans when they arrived with their stockings and their candy and kind of, <laughs> and kind of changed Britain forever. But there was a contingent that arrived long before that. So I think there was something like 11 American pilots fought in the Battle of Britain and four of them flew Spitfires. Why these people came over is a really interesting story, and they all had kind of different motives. Quite a few of them came over early because they really had very strong anti-German feelings and, you know, wanted to help countries that they were associated with from family connections. So there's one or two that were planning to fight for Finland when the Russians had invaded Finland. Didn't quite make it because peace broke out there before they made it. And then they went to France, joined the French Air Force, fought there. And then when France fell, they came back to the UK. And they all had different motivations. There was a chap called Saxon Childers, who was an American officer who went around and interviewed some of these pilots during the war. And they were very cagey about what their motivations were. You know, they just want to make jokes about it. They just want to say they came over for the girls or the beer or, you know, something like that. They didn't want to actually engage with the idea that they were brave in any way. But this guy, Saxon Childers, his view on it was that they had seen all these kind of First World War films about the aces and they'd seen the older generation having a very glamorous time. And in the films, they were sort of meeting all these beautiful blonde women and having a fabulous time. And that's his suggestion was why they came over. It was for the adventure, basically. But actually, when you read some of the accounts of the time, you know, a lot of them had strong political opinions and really felt Hitler had to be stopped and America wasn't doing it. Because you've got to kind of realise what America was like at the time. The anti-war movement was incredibly strong, led by Charles Lindbergh, who was probably the most famous aviator in the world, the man who flew the Spirit of St. Louis and first across the Atlantic. And he turned into this anti-Semitic beast, basically, in, in the previous decade, and led this organisation called America First, which has got a very kind of modern Trumpian ring to it. And they were really, really powerful. And even the president had to kind of kowtow to them to some extent. And they passed a law in America saying that anybody who joined a foreign power's military would lose their American citizenship. So anybody coming over, you know, was taking enormous risk when they did that, not just to their physical selves, but their family might get abused at home and they would certainly lose their citizenship. So it was a pretty brave thing to do. But there was a kind of 
a network was set up in England to pull them over. So there's a guy called Charles Sweeney, who was a American golf coach. <laughs> he taught the Duke of Windsor how to play golf. And he was married to a woman called Margaret Wiggum, who was later famous as the Duchess of Argyll, who had lots of famous affairs and became a kind of notorious figure in the 1950s. So Charles was at the centre of this very glamorous Mayfair set in London. And he used his money and family money to set up this network through Canada where people who wanted to join the RAF could scoot up to Canada and they would be asked if they could fly, they'd have their credentials checked and then they'd be put on a boat over to Europe. So you had this set of incredible people. One of them was a guy called Vernon Keogh, who was nicknamed Shorty, imaginatively enough, because he was four foot 11. He was the smallest man in the RAF and had to sit on two cushions to fly a Spitfire, apparently. And there's another guy called Billy Fisk, who was a banker and Olympic gold medalist, the most upper of upper class Americans. Another guy called Indian Jim Moore, who I thought that was just a nickname, but he turned out actually to be Native American. I think I can safely say he's the only Native American to have ever flown in the RAF. <laughs> I think that'd be a safe assumption to make. And another guy called Jack Kennerly, who got into all sorts of trouble in the air and on the ground and was thrown out of the RAF and went back to America, where he kind of wrote his memoirs and made himself out to be a bit of a hero of the Battle of Britain and got taken on by Hollywood as an advisor on various air-based films. He advised on one that Ronald Reagan starred in, I think. So there's just <laughs> these characters are just so incredible. You just want to know so much more about them. But... They virtually all die. You know, it's tragic. There's a memoir by somebody called Art Donoghue, who was one of these American few, which is a beautifully written piece, actually. In fact, when I first came across it, I was slightly suspicious. I thought, this is too good. You know, if somebody told me that George Orwell had written it, the Ministry of Propaganda, I would probably have accepted it because it's just so elegantly written. And he came across very early, flew in the Battle of Britain right from August onwards and was shot down and very badly injured. But he just couldn't get enough of it. After the Battle of Britain, there were so many Americans coming over that the RAF decided they were going to kind of group them all in what they called Eagle Squadrons, which were going to be all-American squadrons, partly because it was a good propaganda thing showing that there were so many Americans fighting for Britain and it perhaps put pressure on the Americans to join the war. But uh, the Eagle Squadrons didn't get into action very quickly because the Battle of Britain was over and there was a slight lull and Art Donahue just wasn't having any of this. He wanted to get back into action and he went back to his RAF squadron and was taken out to Singapore right into the heart of the Japanese invasion. And I think he was evacuated on the last aircraft out of Singapore. But you just know, as you read his book, you just know this is not going to end well because he's just so incredibly brave, so incredibly adventurous. He writes so beautifully about the walking through London during the Blitz and seeing a single dress shop beautifully set up with its goods out on the pavement, surrounded by devastated buildings and smoke in the air and feeling it in his lungs. And he talks about how actually he never felt fear in the cockpit. He never felt fear being shot at by the Luftwaffe. But sitting in a hotel room, hearing these bombs explode, he just felt every single bomb was about to hit him. And he was absolutely petrified. And he writes about that fear so well, which is it's kind of one of the themes of the book, really, is we think so much about the sort of stiff upper lips and anybody who's raised in those sort of films of the 40s and 50s, watching them on, you know, Sunday afternoon television, it was all, you know, posh chaps with stiff upper lips and moustaches. And you don't really get the fear. And, you know, when you dig into some of the sound archives and some of the diaries of the time, you actually get that absolute primal fear of being shot at, which is completely understandable. And I'm sure they all felt it. But poor Art, didn't see out the war. He'd written a letter back to his parents in Minnesota, which ended with the line, my life may not be long, but it will be wide. And 
he was engaged in an operation flying over to Belgium, I think, to attract German night fighters out so they could shoot them down. And he attracted a Junkers Ju-88 out and unfortunately it got one over on him and he was shot down and his body was never found. And that was the story of all those very early American pilots. You know, they fought for a country that was not theirs and died for it. Well, Churchill was certainly right, wasn't he? Never was so much owed by so many to so few. Honestly, thank you, Alistair. Thanks for telling us the story of the Spitfire and bringing us the people, often teenagers, who risked, well, risked everything to design, fly and build these amazing machines. People who came from across the country, but also across the world. Where can people read more about this? So Spitfire Kids is the book which is out now and it's based partly on a BBC World Service podcast series called Spitfire the People's Plane which is available to download from all your usual podcast suppliers. Wonderful. Alistair, thank you so much. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you so much, James. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.